0: Hi, this is Redeem. We give formerly incarcerated citizens the chance to share their stories, unadulterated, unashamed. This podcast is a partnership between criminal justice advocate Yasmin Barak
1: and storyteller Matt Tecatala. Each episode offers a compassionate glimpse into the life of an American on a quest for redemption, along with the difficulties they face and the victories they celebrate. With each story, we learn more about the complicated nature of self-forgiveness and what it means to live in a just society.
0: Today, we speak with Danny Murillo. He's a criminal justice reform advocate based in Oakland, California.
2: My name is Danny Murillo. I am the research and program analyst at the Opportunity Institute, working on the Renewing Communities Initiative, working on a project to create a statewide network of formerly incarcerated students and alumni in the state of California so that we could use our voice as a collective and to be able to advocate for access for education for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people.
1: Danny grew up in Southern California and the suburbs of LA. As a young boy, he witnessed racism and violence in his community and at
2: home. So you're sitting in prison, or at least I was, and I would always think about my past experience, right? Witnessing domestic violence, being a victim of physical violence, by the age of 13, being an innocent bystander in three drive-by shootings, two of them on the street that I live on. So I experienced a lot of bullying as a kid, and something that always got pointed out was the fact that you know the people would call me a wetback or a beaner. The community that I grew up in is predominantly Mexican-American. People have been there for generations. We just got there. I was born there. Not My parents weren't born there. They, my brother, my, my older brother, my older sister, they were born in Tijuana. And then right after my parents came, I was born in, in the United States. I'm the first one. I'm what Donald Trump would call the anchor baby, right? Growing up, that was a lot of, a lot of things that I experienced was prejudice. I will not say racism, because racism for me is some, means something different. It, it's structural, it's state power. What I experienced on an individual level with people in my community was more just ignorance, prejudice, self-hate. We grew up in a community where people didn't have much. You know, I knew, I had friends that were, families were on government cheese in the 1980s and food stamps, and yet, my dad just got to the United States and yet he has two trucks and a 66 Super Sport Malibu in the front yard. We're the first one on our block with Nintendo, with a VCR, with the video camera, with a microwave, with the refrigerator that throws out ice. Like we had things, right? Like, and I think that's one of the reasons why we experienced that as well, right? Like those attitudes and, and the bullying type of thing. Right? At least that's the way I, I kind of in- interpret it now. People see folks coming into a community like, yo, you never even been here, and yet you come in here with all this stuff. As I grew up, I kind of assimilated more into that community, that culture, or whatever, you know, and, and internalized that self-hate, right? That, you know, kind of put me on that path to where I went to. And understanding though that, you know, even though we had all this shit, even though we had all that, that shit didn't mean nothing because there wasn't love. There wasn't like deep, real, unconditional love. Not that love that, you know, one day you've been the shit out of your the, the mother of your children and then the next day you're telling your kid like, hey, here's 20 bucks, man. Like, I, I love you, man. And you as a kid, like, "There's 20 bucks. Like, fuck, give me that money, you know? Like, but still feeling some kind of way, like, yo, I just witnessed something that's not right.
0: Danny believes that his unstable home environment and his struggle to fit in led him down the path to prison. Once he got there, the violence continued. He ended up in solitary confinement multiple times
2: to a general population, maximum security. And I'm 18 years old. I'm still at that active age, you know? Of, I don't give a fuck. And still having that mentality. And the only thing was that in there, then the enemies changed. The people that I was gangbanging with on the streets are now my so-called allies. The way it breaks down the geography and the racial-ethno groups, it just, it's just so different ballgame from a lot of different prisons, state prisons outside of California. In reality, we're just pitted once against each other, one another, you know? And it's violence, prison violence, jail violence is one way to maintain order for those in power. It wasn't long before I ended up in administrative segregation for an assault. You know, I get out for about two years and I end up back again in segregation, this time labeled as an associate to a prison gang based on cultural drawings, cultural literature that says, you know, because I'm reading this, or has this in my possession, they can label me a prison gang associate. I end up going to Pelican Bay Shu, and that's where I spend the rest of my time. It was about five years. The Shu, is, is it's a torture dungeon. It's designed to break you mentally, physically, and spiritually. In spite of that though, people can still overcome the, the barriers, the traumas, that the psychological traumas that that, that place imposes on, on the psyche. While I'm there, I'm I understanding that, understanding what this place is designed to do. They tell you the only way that you can get out of here is if you parole, snitch, or die. They want you to snitch, to, to even break down these, the unity between even these groups that exist. So it's more of just like a dog geek dog type of place.
1: So how did Danny end up in a supermax prison?
2: So my, my, my case, it involves three other individuals. I was the youngest one. I was 16 years old. The other individuals were about 18, 19, and maybe like 22, 23 and the oldest guy ended up getting a life sentence. The plea bargain was that he had to take a life sentence in order for us, or the three co-defendants, to get a 15-year sentence. If he didn't take that life sentence, then we'd go to court, and we're looking at 75 years to life. Being in solitary confinement, you know, I go back and I start, and I thought about that, I thought about that decision by my friend, my friend Adrian Rodriguez. He made that decision to take that life sentence, and. I am realizing, like, yo, if he didn't take that, I'd probably be sitting here for the rest of my life. But I think for me, it was just the way to honor him and my mother was not to come back. And, you know, even if I had to die poor, if I had to struggle. Like, for me, that was success, not coming back.
0: Danny resolved to stay out of prison once his term was over. He realized that the best way to take full advantage of his freedom would be pursuing an education.
2: I knew I was coming home, and through the influence of people around me, through them, I was able to see something that I couldn't see in myself, right? Potential, the grit, the, the resiliency, the intelligence, you know, and they pushed me like, again, you know, go to school, you know, get your GED while you're here, do the college courses while you're here. And even my mom told me like, hey, if you come home with your GED, I'll be happy. And like she set the bar very low, so i like, well, I gotta get at least that and a certificate or an AA degree.
1: As soon as he came home, Danny hit the ground running on his education.
2: One of the things that I had to do as coming home was to remain active in things that were going to keep me away from the streets. So when I came home, I automatically enrolled into community college. I went out looking for work. I got on food stamps, social services, any resources that were available at my disposal, even as as a formerly incarcerated person. I was going to the career centers. And once school started, I really dove straight into that. The more I learned about higher education, the more I learned about how I could use that space to accumulate social capital, then, you know, open up doors that I didn't even knew existed.
0: Danny was fortunate enough to find resources and support for getting a diploma. But like many other formerly incarcerated Americans, Danny struggled initially to enter the workforce.
2: I went to the job fair. I remember getting an application to, I think it was Job Corp or AmeriCorp or something like that. It was some kind of like program, a nationwide program that'll put students to volunteer in middle school or whatnot. But I still went to do the interview and we're doing the interview and the whole time she's like, oh, I love you, you're gonna, you know, we're gonna sign you up. And he go, I just got one last question. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? I go, two of them. And she, she responded, okay, okay, it's not the end of the world. Was there any weapons used? Three of them. And I showed her my certificates and I explained to her, you know, I went in at 16, I got out at 30. The mind really doesn't develop until like 25, 26. So I explained to her, you know, this is my situation, you know, and. So look, let me call my supervisor. And like not even halfway home, I get the caution, like, yeah, I'm sorry. We're not going to be able to hire you. I knew that I was going to come home to rejection.
1: While in prison, Danny expected that he'd have to adjust to a life with much more limited job opportunities. What he didn't expect, though, was that he'd have to adjust to a life without a few of his closest friends and family members.
2: When I was in prison, about eight or nine of my friends were murdered throughout the time that I was in prison. Two of my best friends and my brother was murdered in a six-month period. That was early on in my incarceration. That left a very negative impact in my life. Like, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. And so when I came home, even though I had got to a point where, like, I didn't want to seek revenge anymore, for me, coming home, all of those memories of my friends came back to life. Like, being able to see my friends that are now all dead. Knowing that, but I'm here. Wondering how come that wasn't me.
0: After facing immeasurable loss and violence in his life, Danny is determined to protect his younger family members from a similar fate.
2: When I was in prison, at this time my brother was about 13, 12, 13 years old, and I I probably had about like three to four years left. And he would write me, and he would tell me like, hey, when you come home, we're going to be out here running the streets, we're going to make money, we're going to take over this dope game. No, we're not. I don't want to do this no more. So when I came home, he was 16. I have a nephew, they're about like the same age, right? Like a year difference. You could tell that, you know, they're already hanging out on the streets, smoking weed, selling weed. Every morning, you know, before they go to school, there'll be like 10 kids outside waiting to get a sack of weed. I I knew that I wasn't going to be able to change them, right? And people would tell me like, yo, your your brother and your nephew are fucking up. You got to beat their ass, you know, and make, you know, get their shit together. And like, my dad used to beat the shit out of me. It didn't work. All I was going to do is create resentment, (laughs) you know? So I got to figure out a different way to do it. And I told them, like, yo, it's cool if you guys do that. I'm sure you're probably thinking that I'm gonna come here and and tell you not to do this, and I'm I'm gonna force you not to do things. Like, I I can't do that. I have no control over you, right? But all I ask is that, you know, you don't sell anything else. You don't sell heroin, you don't sell crystal, you don't sell crack. Even my pro officer told me when when I came home, the only thing I care about is that you stay away from gangs, guns, and hard drugs. It's just different when you sell crack and, and heroin. The environment is different. It makes it much more dangerous. The risk of SWAT team coming into your house is a lot higher. I guess it was my way of doing damage control because I already knew, you know, what, what can happen, you know? And, and for me, it was always like, what would happen if something would happen to them? <laughs> and like, how would I react to it? A lot of us who were in this lifestyle, or actually more like death style, we, we now have siblings or, 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 or kids or grandkids who are caught up in that cycle.
1: Staying on top of his little brother and nephew so they don't make the same mistakes he made has given Danny a newfound sense of empathy for his mother
2: now I know what it felt like to be my mother 20 years ago, knowing that I you know I, I caused my mom a lot of pain right and now what I would, I would rationalize is like not knowing the psychological damage that you caused somebody I never even thought of that as a thing right always time I thought well like at least I never hit my mom but then years later growing, you know as they as they get older and I learn and I'm knowing more I still cause a lot of damage when I was a kid about fifteen years old sixteen that's like when I was then pedal to the metal, you know, just not giving a fuck. People would tell me, like, Danny, you're gonna end up in prison. You're gonna end up dead." I don't give a fuck. And I would go out, like, I'd be leaving the house at 10 o'clock at night. I'll see my mom in her room, you know, crying and praying. And not really understanding that that was, like, psychologically scarring her, you know? But then things became much more clear when even when I got out. We'd have these conversations, and she would tell me that every time she gets dropped off from work and she's walking home, that before she even makes the, the right turn to walk, to go down Shishire Street towards our house, like in her head, she's praying and praying and praying that the SWAT team ain't there, that the paramedics ain't there, that, that the police ain't there. You know, she, yeah, I feel like that's what I think about every day when I make that walk home. And that that even impact, you know, it, it, that's the psychological barriers of reentry, right?
0: For Danny, success in college was the cornerstone of his redemption. It would be an opportunity to grow, network, and understand the systems in place that allowed him to fall through the cracks.
2: This is what I was going to be known for. I, I think that I was going to be known for being a formerly incarcerated person and doing this work. I wanted to be able to work somewhere where I was going to be able to put my critical thinking skills to use, right? And for me, it, it was school. I went to community college. I told myself, okay, look, I'm going to just get, my, get the AA degree. It'll take me two years. And while I'm here, I'm gonna just probably volunteer at an organization where they're working with young people that they're trying to steer clear of the streets, which I used to identify as at risk. These are just kids that are falling through the cracks, right, because they're just part of that cycle, right? But once I started going to campus and you know, one day I ran into a childhood friend who was formerly incarcerated, he did about nine years. He goes, I'm doing pre-med, I wanna be a brain surgeon. A lot of times the reaction in our community would be if somebody says that, Food, you ain't gonna do that shit, man. Talking out your ass. And for me, it was like, like, I can see you doing that. This guy can steal a car in less than 60 seconds. So for me, thinking about those skills in terms of being a brain surgeon, is just a matter of wiring, right? And you just gotta learn how to do that. I made that connection, I like, go, oh, you know what? I can see you doing that. He broke it down, Yo, know, he just told me like, Danny, this is what you need to do. Get involved in student government, get involved in the student club, get involved in, in the Puente program, get involved in EOPS, visit the writing center, visit the math center. You know, make this campus your life. And sure enough, before I even the semester even started, I got into the Puente program. I got into EOPS. By my second semester, I had a job through work studies that I got through my, through my professor, that, that my English professor. She hired me and gave me a job to work at the Student Success Center.
1: Danny was excelling at college despite all the difficulties he had faced. And then one day, during English class, Danny realized his life experiences could be a source of inspiration for him rather than obstacles he had
2: overcome. The professor gave us a project to write a paper on, a, on an educational experience, whether it was positive or negative. And why not use this? But I think to myself, like, if this is something that's, that's going to benefit me, is this something that's going to be able to make an impact? Why not?
0: After two years in community college, Danny was able to successfully transfer to UC Berkeley. While at Berkeley, he found his calling as a criminal justice reform advocate. The connections he made there ultimately led him to the John Garner and Soros Fellowships.
2: I transferred from Cerritos College in the fall of 2012 to the University of California, Berkeley. I really began to have a larger platform, being part of the Prison Hunger Strike Solidarity Coalition on the with the folks on the inside who were about to go on hunger strike at Palacanbexu and folks out here, lawyers, family, committee organizers. I became part of that movement, right? And it just, it garnered national attention even worldwide attention, right, with, with and, uh, folks in, in Palestine, were in solidarity with the people that were hunger striking. Having that platform, right, in conjunction with the work that we're, we're doing, the statewide organizing in regards to the prison hunger strike and also doing the solitary confinement work. And I think that the work that we're doing in UC Berkeley was really benefiting. I think they both kind of fed off each other. Like, people are like, oh, you, you know, you're in solitary confinement, but you're at UC Berkeley? I really got connected with a lot of people during that time, when I graduated, I then went on to serve as a John Garner Fellow at the Vera Institute of Justice and at Rutgers University. So you know, I went out there and you know made more connections. And I, coming back doing the Soros Fellowship, I've constantly you know doing this work, continuously been able to build networks with different people. That's one way to measure success. I've been able to to put in contact with whatever it is, right? Which, whether it's to introduce, introduce them to a fellowship, introduce them to a professor, introduce them to an opportunity that existed before, but they just didn't know that they had access to it. And seeing people succeed, right? Seeing people get admitted into PhD programs, into master's programs, into, you know, undergrads at Berkeley, UCLA, people coming home because I've written letters of parole to folks that that, that served 30, 40 years. I tell people when you come home, if, if higher education is what you want to do, I can connect you. You're at community college in San Diego, guess what? I know some good people down there in San Diego. You're in LA, I know some people in LA.
0: Danny clearly derives a lot of fulfillment from connecting formerly incarcerated people to crucial educational and professional opportunities. He doesn't want people's past mistakes to define them. And he undoubtedly extends this belief to himself.
2: Well, I don't define myself by my record. It's something that I did when I was a a kid and something that I was involved in, right? In context of the environment that I grew up in and what I knew for me, doing what I was doing at that age, that's what success meant to me. Or that's what the resources that were available. While
1: Danny is committed to advocating for formerly incarcerated people, he also recognizes the
2: importance of self-care. Trying to get back into working out and yoga. I do, But I don't do it a lot, as much as I would like to. I I love the yoga because I know it does help me. Had I had different experiences where, like, I realized like something was wrong with me. I've learned to now know what it is or or, or name it, anxiety, PTSD. or At least that's what I've been diagnosed with. Working out, like I said, kind of it kept me balanced. It, it stopped me from you know acting all jittery. Although I did a lot of calisthenics, the running and and the jogging, and I love I love that. I also did like a lot of bench and weights and stuff. Besides that, you know, I, I love to travel. Before I got out of prison, I told myself that I don't know how I would do it, but I wanted to go to. Uh, Mexico City, New York City, and Havana. Turns out I've been to all three of them.
0: If there's one thing Danny enjoys doing more than anything else, though, it's spending time with his nieces.
2: I have three nieces. Eliza, Delilah, and Cassandra. My anchors. They, they definitely inspire me to, to leave this place a better world. I, I hope that whenever they're with me, or when they're not with me, that they remember me as, you know, someone that brought them happiness or... Whatever it was, I, I didn't bring them trauma. I brought them peace and love.
1: That was Danny Murillo. He's a criminal justice reform advocate based in Oakland, California. Thanks for listening to Redeem. We'll see you next time.